Common sense prevails as Bukayo Saka officially withdraws from Gareth Southgate's England squad ahead of the fixtures versus Australia and Italy. We'll also talk Saliba, Trossard, the demands on the modern footballer. Gloat a bit more after the victory over Manchester City and take your questions on this live edition of the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. Let's fucking go, guys. I'm Martin Tyler and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Apologies for any offence caused by my terrible impression of Mikel Arteta just there. I I don't know what came over me. I, I didn't plan to say that. I didn't put it in the opening line. It just came out. Sorry. <laughs> How are you doing, guys? Uh, hope you're all good. Hope you're all well. Welcome back to another live edition of the podcast. Uh, happy Tuesday to everybody. We are well and truly in the international break, aren't we? Feels like a bit of a slow news day um, in terms of football, of course. Um, you know, I've been thinking long and hard this morning, actually, about what we're going to talk about, because when we get into these international break periods, everything goes quiet. I think a lot of people take the opportunity to maybe just disconnect a little bit from football and, and disconnect a little bit from sort of the daily beat that we're on in terms of always tuning in for the latest on the Gunners and our clubs and other clubs and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, I mean, listen, I've had a really, really busy week last week and I'm actually quite okay with the fact that we've got an international break now. Looking at it, maybe a week or two ago, I was like, oh, here we go again. We've just got back into the swing of things and we have to have another international break. What am I going to do during that weekend? I'm going to be bored shitless. I'm going to end up having to start doing some of the things that my wife's got listed for me. Can't use the excuse of work. Uh, this weekend, I'm going to have to get down to it. So, um, yeah, I have to say when when I was looking at it from afar, I was like, oh, I don't really fancy this international break now. But now that we've got to it, I'm I'm quite happy. I'm quite pleased. We're going to continue to make content around the Arsenal and I'm looking forward to bringing you guys some feature pieces over the next sort of week and a bit. Um, got a few in mind. Um, really, really looking forward to pulling those together and uh, can't wait to share them with you. All will be revealed. So make sure you stay tuned and all the rest of it. But yeah, um, now that we're here, I'm quite happy about the fact that we're in an international break for my own personal selfish reasons. But I also think it's come at quite a good time for the Arsenal as well. Beat Manchester City, get that monkey off your back, um, you know, end the dreadful, abysmal run that we were on against them in the Premier League. And also now there's an opportunity to get some of your players back, to get some rest in the case of, you know, a few of the players that, you know, you just think and, and feel have been running on empty, even at the start of the season, which is strange. And that brings us on to the wider debate of what footballers are being demanded to do in terms of the number of games that they're expected to play, the number of com competitions they're expected to compete in. And we'll get into that a little bit later on in the programme. But there are a few players for us that you feel needed a rest. And thankfully, those players have been able to I don't want to say dodge international duty, but they've been left out. They've had to withdraw because of issues that they have. Um, and it seems like a couple of the football associations, the Belgian Football Association, with regards to Leandro Trossard, have been very, very understanding. Of course, he came off at halftime against Manchester City. It wasn't a tactical change. It was a change um, due to the fact that Leandro Trossard 
um, had felt something in his hamstring. So he went off and is not a part of that Belgian squad now. William Saliba withdrew from the French squad. They've been aware that over the past couple of weeks, he's been playing um, with sort of injections as he's been managing slash nursing a toe injury. And they were quite happy, it seems, for him to withdraw from the France squad and just sit this one out and, and sort of get himself back up to full fitness. I wish I could say it was as simple with the England setup, but it wasn't with regards to Bukayo Saka. Finally, yesterday at around about, I don't know, 4.30, 5pm, we heard that Bukayo Saka had officially withdrawn from the England squad, that he was definitely categorically 100% not going to be a part of the England squad. And I was happy. I was relieved by that because I feel like he is one of the players in particular upon whom we've put a huge workload. And he's someone that is going to need a bit of time from time to time to kind of recharge those batteries. And, you know, the international break is always a good opportunity to do that. If he was fully fit and absolutely fine, I wouldn't have a problem with him joining up with England. Like I know people say, I don't want my players to go off on international duty and I don't want them representing their countries, particularly when we're coming into crucial parts uh, of our league seasons and all the rest of it. But, you know, players want to play. Players want to represent their countries more often than not. And from a morale perspective, I think it's actually really good to be a star for your country as well. I think it gives you a status and a confidence that you can bring back into your club side and and you can use to good effect. So I'm not generally against players going and playing for their countries. I'm not generally against people um, going off even to play friendlies for their countries. I don't normally have too much of a problem with that. I do feel like, as I say, when you come to crucial periods, they can be a bit of a pain in the backside and all the rest of it. But, you know, I'm not one of those people that it, it sort of campaigns for this abolition of international football during the domestic season. I, I, I'm not really for that. Um, I think it's fine the way it is. I think the breaks can be frustrating at times, but at times you can use them um, to good effect as well. So look, we went into sort of this period. We we thought that Pukai Saka might have been fit and available for the Manchester City game. We thought that Arsenal were just being really, really coy on that, trying to keep um, that information out of the media. It turns out that Mikel Arteta was double bluffing because, as we mentioned uh, just the other day, Bukayo Saka hadn't even trained. He hadn't even trained in the build-up to that game. So the truth is that when Mikel Arteta sat in front of the media and said he's in contention, he wasn't. He hadn't had a single training session. So what, if he trained on Saturday, Arteta was just going to throw him straight back in? I don't think so. Not given what we believe to be the nature of the injury, which is a hamstring thing, um, very, very sensitive injury that, the type of injury that can um, take a while to heal and you've got to be really, really careful with. But then after the game, when we spoke to Arteta, and we touched on this yesterday when we were talking with Tom, um, Mikel Arteta said, Bukayo Saka is definitely not fit enough to go off and play with England. Like he's, he's not available categorically. That's it. There's, there's no further discussion to be had here. Yet England insisted on Bukayo Saka turning up and reporting for England duty so that they could make their own assessment of the player. To me, this is pathetic. This is really, really bad from England. This is farcical from England because I've mentioned a number of other Arsenal players 
who were in contention to go on international duty, who will now not be going on international duty because it's been communica communicated via those players, via their clubs to the, the respective nations that those players are unavailable. And so they've been left alone. No problem. No song and dance about it. Haven't heard a single word from anybody about Saliba's withdrawal from the French national team. Haven't heard a single word from anybody uh, within the Belgian setup with regards to Leandro Trossard's fitness or lack of. And I understand that Bukayo Saka is a higher profile player in terms of his nation than maybe Saliba is, maybe Trossard is. I get all of that. But this just sounds like a nonsense to me. And it kind of goes against what we've heard over the past few days, which is that Arsenal and England have a really good relationship. Mikel Arteta and Gareth Southgate have a really good relationship. Open, clear lines of communication. Well, do they? Because Mikel Arteta was adamant the other day that Bukayo Saka was not going to be available. Yet England have gone to the extent of making the guy report in for international duty, put him, putting him through assessments of their own. To what? To try and catch Arsenal out? to try and disprove what Mikel Arteta and Arsenal's medical staff had been telling them. It's just, it's so pedantic and childish and, and ridiculous for me. And, and I think that, you know, this is the kind of nonsense that ends up damaging relationships between football clubs and national team managers that then causes the whole club versus country rouse that we've seen crop up over the years. You know, in the past, Bukayo Saka has gone off on England duty and he's played loads. He's played loads and loads and loads. And even when he's gone on international duty at 65, 70%, Gareth Southgate's never given a thought for that. He's always played him. I understand from his perspective that he needs to have the best team available to him so that he can win football matches, so that he can relieve the pressure on himself and achieve the results and objectives that he, of course, has in his own job. I get all of that. And that's why I've never really made a big song and dance about this before. In the past, Arsenal fans have gone, why has Bukayo Saka played all 90 minutes in both games? Why has Bukayo Saka done this? Why has Bukayo Saka done that? And I've never really been one to make a fuss of that. But the way this whole thing was dealt with is either bog-standard communication or England being incredibly pedantic and difficult. Um, Tom says... Um, Harry, this is perfectly normal protocol, no? All national teams do the same with their key players when they're in contention for the game. Clubs always lie when they can. I don't think the players would always um, would always back clubs in that kind of sort of behaviour. I don't think that Pukayo Saka would have lied to Gareth Southgate to dodge playing for England is the point I'm trying to make here. Pukayo Saka pretty much plays every game of football that he's even in the conversation for. I don't for a second believe that Bukayo Saka would have lied. And I don't for a second believe that England think Bukayo Saka would have lied, given the relationship that him and Gareth Southgate seem to have. So then why was this necessary? And you ask if it's perfectly normal protocol. I've never heard of this. In all my years of watching um, football and, and in the last few years covering football, and, and I might be naive here, I might be totally wrong, but I can't remember of a single instance where a manager has come out and said categorically that a player is not available just after leaving him out of the biggest game of the season. And then the club, uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, the country that he plays for decide that there might not be a whole lot of truth in that 
make the guy report in, conduct their own assessments, only to then have egg on their face when actually Arsenal's assessment in the first place was 100% right. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just can't think of too many examples of this where a player who was clearly injured, clearly unavailable, has had to report in for international duty to tick a box. I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. But anyway, um, you know, we we move on from this. It, it, it's, yeah, it, it's something that's really gotten under my skin, actually, over the last couple of days. Maybe more than it should. And maybe if we weren't in an international break and there was more to talk about on an Arsenal front, I, I wouldn't be so fussed about this. Um, it is going to be a slightly shorter show today, of course, because we are in the international break. We'll keep bringing these to you regularly, but there will be days where there isn't that much to talk about. We will spend more time, of course, during this period, taking your questions from the live chat box. So if you've got any, uh, please uh, do drop them in below, get involved. Um, don't forget to leave a like on the video. And if you're brand new, please, please, please subscribe to the channel because on YouTube, we are closing in on that milestone of 30,000. We are on currently at the time of recording 29,828. So we're about 170 odd uh, subscriptions on YouTube away from hitting that 30,000 mark, which would be amazing. Um, we moved up into the top 30 football podcasts today uh, on the Apple chart, which is amazing. Big thank yous to everyone for your support. Um, we're higher up in other countries as well, which is amazing. Um, so a big thank you to you guys because there's so many good football podcasts out there. There's a ton of general ones. There's a ton of um, club-specific ones. And in Arsenal's case, you know, there are, I would say, at least four or five really, really prominent ones. Um, so to be in the top 30 in the country at this moment in time, it's not the highest position we've ever been in. Um, we did breach the top 20 once, but to be in this position is amazing. So a big thanks to everybody um, who's supporting the show, uh, who's downloading it regularly, who's listening to it regularly. It really, really does uh, mean the world to me. So um, a massive, massive thanks. Um, okay. Uh, let's take some of your thoughts on this and some of your questions from the live chat. And uh, and we're going to talk about one more thing before we go on to solely Q&A. Um, but we're going to take a short pause before we do that. So don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the show. Hope you're all good. Hope you're all well. Remember, leave a like on the video if you're watching us on YouTube. If you're listening on audio, please do leave us a review. Let's talk about some of the reaction in the wider media to Arsenal's victory over Manchester City and the way in which they went about achieving it. I was listening to TalkSport a little bit earlier on today and I heard, was it was it Andy Jacobs? Hold on, let me bring up the clip because I, I never want to have a go at the wrong person here. Um, wait a second. Yeah, Andy Jacobs. Can I play? Can I? You might be able to hear this clip. Hold on a second. Let me share this with you guys. Bear with me a second. Let's do this. How do we share screen? Um, let's do that. Share tab audio. Right. Cool. We're good to go. Hold on. I'm going to share this with you guys. This is what Andy Jacobs said um, off the back of Arsenal's one nil win um, against. Manchester City. Have a have a quick uh, listen to this. Hold on a sec. Let me just unmute everything. There we go. Have a have a quick listen to this. Isn't football so funny though? Isn't it? I mean, that game yesterday. First yeah. of all, was a terrible game. Right. Yeah. Second, desperate for game ever needed a goal. That was it, wasn't it? And 
it was a nil-nil all day until an incredibly fluky goal, a fluky winner that the keeper would definitely have saved. Hits Ake and it goes in. And suddenly it's all reinvention and this has been great planning and this certainly... You know, it was a nil-nil. That's what it was. You know, and it turned well, into I, a one. Well, I've had a look at... I didn't see the game. I've come on to why in a minute. I, 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 was, I had to catch up on highlights yesterday, but... Um, I mean, I it was 1-0, Andy, because it definitely said so in the papers. No, no, it was 1-0. <laughs> it was 1-0. <one> <laughs> but if you know what I mean, if it had been 0-0, nobody would have said it. Mm. That's what it was. And, uh, but there you go. That's, that's but I don't think the Arsenal fans will agree with you at this stage. Of course they won't be. You know, so they love getting carried away. No Rodri, no De Bruyne, you know. But uh, And City, honestly, they should have been tuning it up before the game, you know, five minutes of the game. So that would have been a completely different game. So I wouldn't get too carried away. Thank you, Paul. That's Andy, the Chelsea fan. They're going to be top four, isn't it? question about that they're probably mm. going to be second minimum and they might even win it but we'll see yeah. i mean obviously mate it's nil nil until it's one nil i mean generally football matches do start at nil nil don't they that's what i thought but anyway um i i just think it's it's nuts isn't it like what we witnessed on sunday was not a classic by any stretch of the imagination it wasn't the best game of football i've ever watched in terms of you know, how entertaining it was. But it was a game that had us all gripped. It was a really, really intriguing tactical battle, I thought. Two managers that know each other inside out, that, you know, really do um, always look for the smallest advantages, that always uh, want to respond to the moves that one another are making, i.e., and Mikel Arteta admitted this after the game, Jeremy Doku comes on. What does Mikel Arteta do? He probably would have made this sub anyway at some point because he always does. But he took off Zinchenko and replaced him with Tommy Asu, who he feels is a better one-on-one -on -one defender. So that was just an example of one of the moves that we saw happen in a game that was between two managers, as I say, that know each other inside out. And we're always trying to find those small uh, marginal advantages in the hope that that would then lead to their team winning the game. It's nil-nil. Uh, what, what, what did he say? Hold, hold on. I, I, the game was terrible. It was nil-nil all day until a fluky goal. <laughs> Go back to my point before. Every game starts nil-nil. Um, Maybe, as Johan says in the chat, it wasn't really uh, a game for the neutrals. Maybe not. But I've watched plenty of games over the years, um, you know, as a football fan, you know, games that were big games in terms of the 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 sort of knock-on effect of them, the the fact that they would have probably been title deciders at points between two good sides, thought they were not that great in terms of entertainment and all the rest of it. But I remember being gripped to games like that because of the significance of them. Not every game is going to be 4-4. Like not every game is going to be 3-3. Like that, that's not how football works. I thought this was a game that was incredibly intriguing, that was really, really gripping. And I thought it was a game that even though there wasn't as much incident as you'd maybe have hoped. I don't think it was one that you could have taken your eyes off of. And then it feeds into my next point, which is all we've ever heard about Arsenal over the last few years is that they're naive and that they're bottlers and all the rest of it. Yet they recognise that they are probably inferior to this Manchester City side. Yes, they were without Rodri and De Bruyne. We were without Bukayo Saka. We couldn't start Gabriel Martinelli. We lost Leandro Trossard at half time. let alone the fact that Mateo Kovacic should have been sent off uh, in the first half, and that didn't happen. 
why people seek to discredit Arsenal um, off the back of beating Manchester City, I don't think I'll ever understand. Um, you know, on the one hand, as I say, we're this naive team, apparently, that bottle everything. We recognise our weaknesses. We understand their strengths. We formulate a game plan that was far more pragmatic than what we tend to see from Mikel Arteta's side. And we go out, we keep ourselves in the game, we compete largely in the game. Um, you know, we compete throughout the game, in fact. We get to a point where the game is finally balanced. We get a bit of luck. You know, you make your own luck to a degree. You have to be in the game to have a chance of winning a game like that. And we managed to get over the line thanks to a deflected goal. Why don't we deserve credit for that? Why don't Arsenal deserve credit for adapting their approach? Why don't Arsenal deserve credit for finally beating a side that have been so dominant over them for a number of years? Why do people seek to discredit the way we did it, the style in which we played and, and keep pointing at the fact that Rodri and De Bruyne were missing? We have players missing too. We have players missing too. And it seems like the, the awful decision to leave Mateo Kovacic on the pitch or to avoid showing him a couple of yellow cards has been completely swept under the carpet. Why? Because Arsenal went on and won the game. Doesn't make it a non-issue. There's less noise around it than there would have been had we not won the game, of course. But it was still something that went against us. And I just feel like people love to discredit us and it drives me up the wall. But anyway, um, we'll move on from that. Let's take some of your thoughts and questions uh, from the live chat. I'd love uh, to hear from uh, some of you guys. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about um, what what those guys uh, over on TalkSport had to say. Um, Wesbird says, uh, why or why is there such a dislike to the Arsenal and sheer disrespect towards us at times, Harry? Last season, there was a point where I realised that Arsenal as a football club are back in terms of the relevance in terms of how, um, you know, how we're perceived and all the rest of it. There was a time where people became apathetic towards us. Our own supporters, you could argue, at times became apathetic towards us. But the wider footballing world certainly did for a period of time. We were irrelevant, if you like. The minute we proved to people that we were ready to compete right at the top of the division again, the minute we showed people that we'd made significant progress from the season before, where we were missing out on the Champions League to the point where we were nailed on to qualify for the Champions League and we were in the title race right up until the last few weeks of the season, the, the mood and the attitude towards Arsenal completely shifted. And at that point, I knew that Arsenal Football Club were back. Take it as a compliment. Take it as a compliment. Um, Russ Morgan says, uh, to be fair, we should have been a goal down early doors, but City didn't take their chances. We've lost plenty of games, Russ, that we should have been ahead in. Um, you know, that's just part and parcel of football. Part of um, deserving to win a game is being able to take the opportunities that you fashion, right? Um, I, I get where you're coming from. I, I just feel like, you know, you can always find those those examples, those variables that maybe just went your way or didn't go your way and then attribute those as the reason for why you did or didn't win. I, I think that Arsenal were very, very competitive against Manchester City, were very, very competitive in the um, Community Shield final in a similar way, in that we were mature. And we said to Man City, come and attack us, come and break us down at points. We were willing to take the game to them at points as well. 
But having that right balance between attack and defence and knowing when to be super aggressive, when to sort of try and block out the energy that was coming onto the field from the crowd, because that can fire you up to making rash decisions, charging into things you have no right to win and all the rest of it. I just thought we did a really, really good job of managing that stuff. Um, MM says, this is a game which shows Arsenal are getting closer to that level. I agree. Um, Diagene also says, well, we didn't have Thomas Partey starting our best midfielder. So that's another point. Didn't even didn't even remember that when I was going on my little rant. Um, Hybrid Ultra, thank you so, so, so much for your kind super chat donation. Really appreciate it. Says, is Arteta an attacking or a defensive coach? In my opinion, he's the latter. I've realized that Mikel Arteta's foundations are built on how compact we are and how we control the game. Yeah, that's a great point. I think he likes to defend by having the ball and being compact in terms of making sure that we fill the central areas. And if you think back to when he first came to the football club, we were playing with a back five at points. You remember when we went and won the FA Cup? Like we were set up with wing backs and three centre backs and we were really, really pragmatic and we were looking to... Um, you know, to hurt teams on the counter-attack using the pace of Aubameyang and the likes. And um, and yeah, you know, people did think that Mikel Arteta was really defensive at that point. And at, the, at that time, it came like a bit of a, a breath of fresh air because for years we hadn't seen an Arsenal manager that was willing to do that. Unai Emery did it at times, but generally his team were open and, and sliced through like a knife through butter. So yeah, um, you know, I, I think that you make a really, really valid point. It's a really, really good point. And it's one that's got me thinking now, perhaps that's something that we could do a podcast on. Let me write it down and you can have full credit for it. Is Arteta an attacking or defensive coach? It's a really, really good question um, from the Highbury Ultra. And if you've got any input that you want to put in it, hit me up, get in touch. Um, you can email me chroniclesafc at gmail.com or you can dm me on twitter or x as it's now called whatever you prefer um get involved let's see uh what else we've got um uh, tbg says it was a great super chat it really really was uh, raul says uh, hi harry do you think our chance creation has taken a hit based on our desire for more control we're 12th so far in chance creation um yeah yeah um, I, I think there's something in that. I think that our chance creation, what well, statistically it's reduced, hasn't it? But I guess for me, chance creation can be a bit misleading in that you could create a really, really good scenario, for example, where you've got three against two and you should create a chance. You don't create a chance um, because you, you make a bad decision, play a wrong pass. Um, and, and that can highlight maybe your build-up play as, as being the problem. And then there'll be other situations where, you know, you're creating the chances, but the finishing isn't there. So basically the point I'm trying to make, I've gone around the houses a little bit, I've confused myself a little bit with what I'm saying there. But the point I'm trying to make is that there's no point having one without the other. So there's no point in having sky-high chance creation if you can't finish. And there's no point um, in being able to finish if you can't create chances. So I think the two things need to go hand in hand and you need to find the balance between them. You know, there are some players that will aid you in your chance creation because of what they bring on the pitch. But there are also, um, you know, people out there who, um, you know, there are also people out there who 
don't bring much in terms of chance creation, i.e. an Erling Haaland, but can apply that finishing touch. Um, you know, so yeah, it's um, it, it's a really, really interesting point. But again, that can feed into our pod that we're going to do, one of our features over the course uh, of this international break. Guys, you are full of ideas today. Brilliant stuff. Thank you uh, very much, Raul. Um, a, a big hello to uh, Mohammed as well, who's in the chat as well. Um, Mohammed, no word of a lie. Um, I was looking for you on Twitter um, earlier today because I wanted to send you a message um, to make sure that everything's okay. Obviously, um, the conflict in, in the Middle East at the moment has led to lots and lots of people losing their lives and nobody should lose their lives on either side um, of this. And um, yeah, I know that you're a regular on the show and um, you're one of the first people I thought of. Uh, when the news started breaking. So I was uh, was going to message you, um, but I couldn't find you on Twitter. I think it's because your name is written in Arabic and I couldn't search that way. But um, great to see you in the chat and um, and great to see that that you're okay um, and you're watching the Chronicles of Aguna even um, in a really, really difficult time. Look, my thoughts um, are with everybody that's affected, again, on both sides. Um, you know, I've I've not talked about it on this podcast up until now, because I don't know enough about the issues in that part of the world. And and I feel like when you've got a bit of a platform, and I know this isn't the biggest platform in the world, but when you've got a bit of a platform, I actually think if you speak on such issues with conviction, because you think that that's going to get you clicks, or you think that, um, you know, your opinion is, is worth a lot, you're actually doing damage and you're doing harm and you're deflecting from what might be the real problem or the real issue. So all I'm going to say on it, um, because as I say, I'm not in a position to, to give people sort of the download on it, or, you know, they're far more educated people on this type of thing than me. So please go and, and seek that out. Um, but I just want to say that to hear of so many innocent people dying, wherever it is, whoever it is, 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 is not on. It's horrible. And I hope, um, that it all comes to an end um, sooner rather than later, because the longer it goes on, the more people are going to die, and and that's not what we want. Um, so yeah, um, I'm actually really relieved, um, Mohammed, to see you there, mate. So um, thank you, thank you for popping in. Okay, um, let's see uh, what we've got in the chat box. A big hello to Kim, who says. Uh, First time catching you live after a while. Um, after, uh, sorry, first time catching you live after listening for a while. Good to see you, mate. Great to see you here. Um, I love it when people come over from the audio to the video and vice versa. I think it's great. Be subscribed on both. Why not? Um, it really, really helps me. And it means that you never miss any content. And if you've got time and you want to look at my ugly mug while I'm talking about Arsenal, you can. If you prefer to have a listen while you're doing something more important, then you can do that as well. Okay, uh, what else have we got? Um, there was a good question about um, the Chelsea game, which is coming up after the international break. Oslo Guna says, what would your starting 11 be against Chelsea if everyone recovers from injury? Um, then it's easy for me. Uh, my starting 11 would be... Oh. I know Arteta will pick Raya. And I guess if he's just kept the clean sheet against Manchester City, he probably should pick Raya. Um, but I've just got this thing about Ramsdale in the back of my head that makes me think he deserves to be playing because he is that good. But in terms of the 11 that I would go with, then I would go Raya in goal, 
I'd go with White at right back. I'd go with Saliba. I'm just writing this down so I can see what I'm doing. Gabriel at centre-back, Zinchenko on the left. My midfield would be Partey, Rice and Odegaard, which I've always said is Arsenal's best midfield. Saka on the right, Martinelli on the left and Jesus up front. That for me is Arsenal's best eleven. You can use Kai Havertz as a forward at some point in that game. And there's a part of me, there's a tiny part of me, and we'll talk about this when the game comes around, but there's a part of me that wants to go, Kai, you go up front against them. Let's stick you up top against Chelsea and you can show them what you can do. I would love it if he scored um, at Stamford Bridge. You know why? Because Chelsea fans have spent the entire start of this season telling us repeatedly how stupid we were to pay for him and how bad a footballer he was um, for them and all the rest of it, when I just don't think that's the case. Because it doesn't seem to matter who they play up front. They don't score enough goals. They scored a few against Burnley at the weekend, a side that I am sure are going to be relegated this season. Um, and uh, And they've got a little bit gassed over that, but I don't think that, you know, he's gone. They brought in Nicholas Jackson. Has he scored a ton of goals? Not really. Um, you know, he's starting to contribute. He scored at the weekend, but is he a massive upgrade on Kai Havertz? No, he's not. Um, I understand that Nkunku's injured and all the rest of it, but I just think the way that they've been so disrespectful to Kai Havertz, it would be nice if he could play and if he was the one to sort of bite them in the ass for it um, down the line. But anyway, uh, lots of great questions coming in. Keep them coming. Um, so that would be my starting 11 against Chelsea. If everybody recovers, Raya, White, Saliba, Gabriel, Zinchenko, Partey, Odegaard, Rice, Saka, Jesus, Martinelli. If Saka is still not available, I would play Jesus on the right because I thought it was excellent on the right against Manchester City and I'd play Havertz up front rather than Nketiah. I think that would be more effective. Uh, what else have we got? Um, Jid says, we've beaten City twice this season. Do you think City would now be nervous to play us or do you think they think we got lucky twice? I feel going forward, we should go for it instead of trying to stifle. I think the approach that we've applied is the perfect approach because it involves us being responsible defensively and what's the other word? Um, and pragmatic when we need to be. But it's also, there have also been examples of periods in those games where we've tried to take the game to them and we've done it to good effect. So I don't think that you can ever play against the Manchester City side that are that good. Um, and be completely open and, and expect to win every time. So what do you want to do? I think you want to increase your chances of winning the game. Therefore, you should adopt the approach, in my opinion, that gives you the greatest chance of getting a result. And listen, we've beaten City now, right? We've beaten them at home. We don't need to beat them at the Etihad. If we lost, it wouldn't be the end of the world because we've already taken three points off them. But if we could get a draw, that could be an excellent result. If you take four points out of Manchester City, that's an excellent result. That's an excellent return. So I wouldn't be going to the Etihad later on in the season and playing gung-ho attacking football. I think it's completely unnecessary. I think we found a formula that gives us a greater chance of beating Manchester City, and I would stick to it at this moment in time. If our team continues to evolve and continues to develop, there may well be a point where we can take the approach that you're suggesting, which is just to take the shackles off and go for the kill. But I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're there yet. Um, Raul says, how are you spending this interlull? Um, 
Uh, how are you spending this interlock? Um, trying to think now. I don't know if I'm going to be working on one of the sort of lower league games. Um, I don't know um, if I'm going to be doing anything next next Saturday. But for the time being, this week, um, I need to catch up on some rest. I've got plenty of uh, sort of admin stuff I need to be getting on with that I've been putting off over the last week because of how busy I've been. Um, so I'm going to catch up with that. I'm going to spend some time with my kids as well because during the season, it's really, it's really difficult. Like I'm out most of the day. On, on, on most days I come home and I see them for 45 minutes to an hour before they go to bed and then I've dropped my son off at school um, and then I'll go off to work and I won't see him again until an hour before he goes to bed and the same with the little one so I think I need to spend time with them um, over the course of the interlock which is another reason why I was actually quite looking forward to it because things have been so hectic that I haven't really had too much time to do that um, but yeah. Okay. Um, what else we got? I'm just having a look uh, through the comments. I can see um, somebody trying to get me to bite on something I, I didn't even say um, about the conflict. I said that I don't want to see innocent people die on either side. Um, I don't want to see innocent people die full stop. I told you I don't know um, enough about the subject and that I am not going to get involved um, in this this kind of debate because this is a football podcast. There are plenty of places um, to debate that kind of stuff. Bottom line is, every time I hear of people dying, uh, it is, it's horrible. And and I feel for the people who are, are losing relatives and, and, and all the rest of it. And um, the situation is an awful one. I'm not going to sit here and um, and try... To take one side, I'm not going to take one side. Um, I obviously condemn the actions of anyone that goes and kills innocent people. And that's it. Um, I, I don't know what else you want me to say on that. And, and I'm actually uh, a little bit irritated that, you know, you're trying to make it out that I am taking a side when I've clearly not done that. And I've made every effort not to do that. Um, I said from the very beginning that I condemn anybody that kills anybody else. Um, particularly when you're talking about civilians. And um, that has happened on both sides up until now. So, you know, that's it. Um, and, and that's what tends to happen in these conflicts. It's the innocent people that, that tend to be the ones that suffer, unfortunately. Uh, what else have we got? Um, Let's have a look at what you guys are saying. Uh, Som2 says, uh, Harry, please do we have any update on how long Saliba and Trossard's injuries are for? And do you think we can perform similarly like we did last season against the league's big six? Um, no real update in terms of how long they're going to be out for. I know that Trossard's injury is a hamstring problem. Don't know exactly how long that is going to keep him sidelined for. It depends on the severity of that, of course, which I'm not privy to. On Saliba's, I don't think there's any problem there. If there was, he wouldn't have played against Man City. It's something that they've been managing, from what I understand, for a few weeks now. Um, and hopefully the uh, the period of time off now will allow him to to recover to a point where that management can be reduced of that problem and hopefully it goes away. Um, Lorcan says, uh, hey, Harry, mate, hope you're well. We need to win trophies uh, this season, in my opinion. I'd honestly take the League Cup. Would love the League, though. Thank you very much, mate, uh, for your very, very kind uh, Super Chat donation to the channel. 
Um, I'd love us to win trophies. The League Cup, it's not at the top of my priority list. In fact, it's at the bottom, but it's not a trophy that I remember Arsenal winning because the last time they won it, I was a, I was a little kid and, and I don't remember it. So I'd quite like to see us win that. But if that was the only trophy we won this season and we were not in the title race and we didn't go far in the Champions League and we didn't have a good crack at the FA Cup, I'd be a little bit underwhelmed. I've got to be honest. I've got to be honest. Um, Jid says, uh, is Rice really an eight or are we shoehorning him in because he's a fan favourite? Even at West Ham, Suchek played a more advanced role in their double pivot. Um, I think the great thing about Declan Rice is that he can be a great eight and he can be a great six as well. And that's what I think is, is so brilliant about him. I think there will be fixtures where Mikel Arteta will go, I don't need Rice and Partey here. And I can get away with the Havertz or Vieira thing in midfield because we're at home and we're going to be dominating the ball when we're playing against what we perceive to be a weaker side and all the rest of it. But I think against the very best, against the very elite, to be able to play Partey and Rice and to have Partey um, sort of break in lines. Because look, the one thing I would say that Thomas Partey still does better than Declan Rice is break lines with his passing. I think his forward passing is better and more sophisticated than Declan Rice's at this stage. I think Declan Rice will get there. And I think Declan Rice in time will prove to everybody that he can do that. But when it comes to those sort of line-breaking passes from deep midfield positions, for example, out onto the right wing for Bukayo Saka, which is a, a real favourite pass of Thomas Partey's, I think Partey still brings that to the table a little bit more than Declan Rice does. If you can play them both, I think that's the perfect scenario. You know, and then Rice has that freedom to play between the two roles. He can drop in alongside Thomas Partey um, and and do the defensive stuff that he does so well. But he's also got that license, knowing that Thomas Partey's filling in to be able to get into advanced areas um, and uh, and sort of impact the games uh, that way as well. Um, loads and loads of. Uh, well, not loads and loads. We're getting the political stuff coming into the chat box. This is not a political podcast. Um, this is a football podcast. So um, people can say what they want to say. And, and you know, I understand that there's a lot of, uh, of anger and, uh, and a lot of strong feeling about what's going on. But as I said to you guys right at the beginning, um, I, I, I don't I, I don't know the full um, story on, on both from both sides. So. This is, I'm not getting involved in it on this podcast. Like I've said what I've said. I've said that I condemn the deaths of innocent people from both sides. And unfortunately, whenever there's a conflict, whoever started it, whoever is the root cause of it, whatever, unfortunately, the people that suffer the most are the ones that have nothing to bloody do with it. And um, and there are gonna there have been casualties already on both sides. And that is why it's really, really important that it stops. Um, and that some sort of resolution um, is found, um, you know, some sort of you're never going to get full agreement. I understand that. But something needs to happen to stop more lives being lost in the process. Um, look, I'm going to I'm going to block people that are that are going mad um, in the chat about this stuff um, because it's a really, really sensitive subject. People come here um People come here to talk about football. That's what we're going to do. Um, there are other platforms for that. There are other places um, for that type of conversation. It um, doesn't mean that I'm dismissing 
the argument of either side. Um, I just, um, this is not the place for it. This is not the place for it. Um, anyway, right. We're going to leave it there. Um, a big thank you to everybody for joining me. Lots of excellent questions as always. And I will see you all uh, very, very soon with more. In fact, I'll see you tomorrow with another edition of the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. Uh, please do join me then. Subscribe, like, share, all the rest of it, and I'll see you soon. Goodbye. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon.